Welcome back to Those Happy Places, the podcast that treats theme parks, rides, and attractions like literature. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White. And Alice, guess what? What? We are back for a normal episode, normal-ish episode of Those Happy Places. We have been working on a mini-series called Birds of Paradise, all about Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room for about two months now and we thought to ourselves you know what let's take a quick break from that series and talk about just kind of a general theme park topic again yeah it's uh it's good to be back doing a uh, a yes a maybe normal episode of uh, of those happy places birds of paradise was so much fun and if you are listening to this now and you haven't listened to birds of paradise it's only four parts so far go listen yeah um we had a really good time putting that together but uh we missed kind of talking about theme parks uh, as a general concept rather than yeah. like one specific attraction yeah you can't you can't uh pull apart an attraction to the level of detail that we are with Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room for Birds of Paradise uh, without, you know, kind of you know, finding yourself going like, okay, you know, we've talked about this enough for now. We will be back to Birds of Paradise soon though. Yes, we have more to say uh, specifically about uh, the man, the myth, the legend Walt Disney and his relationship with the attraction and 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 further. Um, but in the meantime, we are going to uh, to take a step back and approach theme parks from a wider lens. Um, not a specific attraction, not a specific theme park, but rather theme parks in general. Um, but not just theme parks, right, buddy? That's right. Uh, this is a uh, timely uh news-oriented episode of Those Happy Places. Not really. Uh, but there was there was a piece of theme park news that stood out to us this past week that made us think, like, oh, that's an interesting, like, parallel. And that piece of news is that the NBA will be finishing its season at Walt Disney World, like, on property. Uh, and that's fascinating. It's like so fascinating like a a a entire you know half season or however many games they're going to be playing of a sports league is going to be played at a theme park and resort uh and that's just wild like it's one of the most interesting developments of these uncertain times and it got me thinking like is it really that crazy is it really that that uh wild of a suggestion that theme parks and sports align themselves so closely and the more i thought about it the more i was like oh no they're the same actually (laughs) they're they're actually the same thing which is the conclusion that we've come to after thinking about this and getting ready for this episode yeah Yeah, this piece of news uh we won't be talking about it too thoroughly here but i think we're gonna do a part two where we're gonna uh further explore uh that idea um but in this part one of our uh sports segment we're going to talk about uh why sports Sports and sports arenas or um, or stadiums um, are exactly like theme parks, and um, and <laughs> or, what that means to the people that attend, and what it means to the the fandom surrounding sports. Uh, slightly amended, uh, <laughs> sports and stadiums are a, a, a lot like theme parks, <laughs> and at least qualify as themed environments and themed entertainment. Absolutely, uh, and. Like you said, uh, they they are practically the same thing, but there are some <laughs> distinctions. <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, fine. <laughs> uh, and one of the things I want to start with is the uh, the kind of nature of a sport arena as a destination, uh, and how it kind of matches the structure of a theme park. I mean. When you go to a sporting event, uh, no matter what kind of sporting event it is, if there is a large stadium and crowd, uh, you know, you could find yourself driving to the stadium, waiting in line at the parking lot, paying money to park, 
waiting in line at the front gate. Going through some kind of security uh, yeah. bag check or something like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, you might even find yourself uh, kind of exploring the stadium a bit, you know, walking around, seeing the sights. There might even be a few themed attractions that uh, have like the logo of the team on them. Yeah, some uh, something to take pictures with or in front of, um, you know, printed walls. Or uh, I know uh, Dodger Stadium has a giant helmet that you can go hang out on, climb on. The kids climb on it, and yeah. uh, you know things things like that. Things that you would find in like the the front section of a of a theme park like a main street usa kind of thing yeah in Uh, fact the more that i think about it the more uh ballparks especially baseball um they have like a front entrance that kind of has a main promenade uh that has like a lot of stands and kind of a uh unified theme of like ballparkiness yeah (laughs) and to to further tie it into a theme like a theme park fandom um there are there's a like a a national challenge basically for hardcore baseball fans um to attend a game or at least to visit every single mlb uh ballpark that they have in the in the country uh there's sites dedicated to ranking the experiences there's tours you can take there's um, you know, checklists and when you've accomplished and you visited every, you know, ballpark in the country, you can reward yourself in some way. You know, it's it, it's kind of like how people treat attending all of the Disney parks, you know, and or how people want to go out of their way to visit theme parks for one specific roller coaster. They say we, you know, like it's a it's like a tourist thing. Yeah. Uh, I know that when I get the chance to see a sports event played when I'm on a trip, it feels really special, which is weird because, I mean, I could see sports in my hometown pretty easily. But for some reason, being in that slightly different kind of an environment where everybody's wearing that home team's jersey or, you know, everything is themed to the home team. I don't know, it just, it feels really unique. Uh, And another thing that makes, like, exploring different ballparks and different stadiums interesting is, like, the signature food items. Yes. Yes, of course, signature food items are so important, especially to, like, baseball. We're going to keep talking about baseball, (laughs) I guess. Um, Like, a super famous example being, of course, like, the Dodger dog. I'm going to keep talking. I love Dodger Stadium. I think it's a beautiful spot up on the hill. And a Dodger dog is uh, a classic food that you can get pretty much only at Dodger Stadium. Not not exclusively, but, like, pretty much. (laughs) Yeah, I think I've seen uh, Dodger Dogs available for purchase at, like, Costco because they're so big. Yeah. Uh, uh, But they're these enormous uh, hot dogs. um, And, you know, there's kind of a a claim to fame about that specific food item. When I moved to the Bay Area, California, uh, I started to attend uh, San Francisco Giants games. And one of the things you can get here is a crab roll. Um, or a lobster roll and they're both like infamous as well as uh, garlic fries those are a big thing here too Uh, and it's a completely different sort of like flavor experience but also it changes like the smell of the stadium which yes smells like hot dogs but also you've got this kind of fresh seafood sourdough element going on uh, that you just don't get at Dodger Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wow, we're gonna turn this into a into no, a hometown is, rivalry thing. This is not okay. Even <laughs> though the Dodgers are pure evil. Wow. Uh, yeah, and and truly the worst team in baseball, wow. maybe in all of history. Wow, uh, I didn't think this was that kind of podcast, but all right. <laughs> no, I, I'm of course joking. There is a rivalry, which is another thing that I discovered moving up here and growing up in Southern California, I was never aware of. Um, yeah, not not really exposed to like as kids. Um, but yeah, that rivalry is really intense, apparently. Yeah. And uh, but um, but the Do- the Dodger dog being like a like a classic example of this kind of it gets referenced all over pop culture and um it's i mean it's been around since the early 60s um as like a 
like a staple of the of the place. I mean, I can think I, I just remembered it was referenced in the movie Sandlot, um, for example, um, and in the movie um, in the movie Hancock, where it's like these are they just drop references to Dodger dogs and people, even if you're not from the area, just like know what that means. Yeah, there, there's an expectation that this iconic food item is like known, which yeah. really reminds me of like a Dole Whip or yeah, a churro. Exactly. Um, where where like going to Dodger Stadium doesn't feel quite complete without a Dodger dog. Last time I went, I had four. That's not a joke. <laughs> I was that is real, so many. I didn't I didn't they're like ho- they're so big. <laughs> I they're know. really big dogs. I know, but they were so good. It was more like three and a half. Okay. Um, I, I I grabbed the the other half of uh my brother couldn't finish one of his, so I ate it. <laughs> but That's he had funny. like five or six, swear to God. <laughs> they're they're pretty good too. Yeah, it's like um, a good hot dog. Um, there are there are definitely parallels in um like food construction as well. Like uh highly recommend that if uh you want to know more about themed food that you go back and listen to our episode on that. Yes. Um but this idea that the food should be portable and snackable and eatable not in, too messy and, right. yeah. Uh, from a seat with no table right like there's there's that consideration for how the food is presented um to make it possible to even consume in the ballpark it's an, it's an interesting idea yeah and something that like we just said you see echoed in in theme parks it's the exact same thing the reason why handheld foods like churros and uh and turkey legs and stuff like that are are um accessible in a disney park yeah. um because they don't have enough they don't have enough room for everyone to sit down and eat lunch all at the same time or right. you know and nobody wants to like or not nobody wants to but like a lot of people are like no I don't want to sit down for lunch I want to grab my food and keep going and keep experiencing the attraction that I am in right uh, in and, this and, case in uh, this that case would be the game the game or the stadium or you know the act of being in the environment and taking part in various traditions even that that take place at a at a theme park yeah and you know taking part in in traditions is a really interesting uh parallel as well right because in no other context um do do i see as much similarity in the way that people like wear their fandom on their sleeve in like a collective way like if you go to a convention like say comic-con you might wear a uh themed shirt that like has your favorite comic book character or you might wear an elaborate cosplay but it's very individualized um you know if you go to a sporting event if you go to disneyland specifically both of those places kind of have a uh general dress code like the ears or the hat with the team's logo on it yeah you Uh, you you dress up you and and you wear it and you show your fandom when you say on on your sleeve literally (laughs) on the sleeve of your of your spirit jersey or your regular jersey depending (laughs) on which which event you're at (laughs) yeah the use of the word jersey is really interesting there as a as a parallel like uh, a jersey for being on team disneyland right is what the spirit jersey is yeah um but yeah similarly you wear a jersey that says i'm with the team you know i'm representing the team and i'm part of their their collective victories and losses um and that connection really places the audience within history it places it within like this idea that the the team has been around for a while however long they've been around and you're part of that or if the team is new you're like a founder right you're like there to support them in their early days like you were you were og you were there (laughs) um where you know wearing a pair of ears and spirit jersey to disneyland similarly connects you you're like yeah i'm a fan of this place i know things about it i'm in with the team uh, and Alice, I'm reminded of one of the last times I went to the Coliseum in Oakland and saw an A's game. Uh, I sat near a couple of fans that had uh, these big, like, Letterman jackets. 
Um, and on the jackets were patches from every season that they had been season ticket holders. And oh, cool. they had more patch visible than jacket on wow. their jackets. Uh, they had been there for at least 30 years. Wow. Uh, they definitely had patches from when the A's had last won the World Series, which was 1989. Uh, and like 30 years is, you know, a third of a lifetime. That's incredible. Yeah, to be to be attending a, a sports team as a fan that long is, I mean, it, it's worked into your identity. It's wor- worked into local identity, uh, and it it means things to people. It's meaningful. It's not frivolous entertainment. It's a connection, and that's another thing that can like like cause traditions is this idea of the audience being connected to the attraction right so uh in similar examples uh like wearing you know certain jerseys or um or or hats or ears and spirit jerseys um certain um certain traditions or certain like actions tend to follow you've got people who attend sports games or who have established themselves as as fans of the of the sport and of the team for so long that they have created and take part in and share traditions with other people who go to these these sports games these these people you sat next to at the A's game may have been going for 30 years they may have started their own traditions and shared the traditions of, of the patch wearing or or things like that with other people who are also fans but some of these fan traditions in sports can get pretty uh intense <laughs> we'll say um and have and don't have anything to do with necessarily what you wear but maybe uh what you what you bring uh or what you do or what you yell um i was doing research for this episode and i found this excellent article called uh the weirdest fan traditions in sports <laughs> and i've got some a plus examples to share with everybody all right that hit, are me, just, hit me with a couple a lot of them are college uh are, are like uh college team related um so like for example at the university of new hampshire when they play hockey um uh, whenever they play a, a, a home game and the University of New Hampshire scores its first goal of the game, somebody throws a fish onto the ice. <laughs> they just chuck a fish onto the ice. It's so strange. I mean, it's just a thing that they've been doing for many, many years. Um, yeah, but if somebody were to, say, not throw a fish, then like, people that would, would be get... so meaningful, right? Right. They would, it would That break in tradition... Um, would I mean it's it's well known sports fans and athletes are very superstitious lot right like so if if that fish didn't appear or somebody forgot it or the person responsible for bringing the fish didn't show up to that game um, people would be really upset and not just like in a superstitious way but in a like we miss this we want this we come to see this kind of uh, to see this and to experience this like collectively. Similarly, also in hockey, the Detroit Red Wings have an octopus that they they do the same thing. <laughs> an entire octopus an gets entire flung octo- onto the ice. Octopus. Um, Sometimes uh, the octopus is still alive and will attach itself to the referees um, and and kind of uh, like uh, kind of puppet their body around. What? It's very no, eldritch yes. horror. No, it's, it's super scary. No, uh, that's not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I will note that uh, throwing an octopus onto the ice at a Detroit Red Wings game uh, will result in ejection and a $500 fine. Um, but the police officer has to see the throw in order for a fan to be ticketed. Ah. So they go out of their way to... Uh, to hide and disguise the fan. <laughs> so, you know, people people around the person with the octopus will, you know, hide them from the police so they don't get caught, so they don't get ticketed and fined. Um, it's pretty uh pretty interesting. Um and and a lot of a lot of these traditions in this uh in this article um uh involve um throwing things onto 
onto fields or it's a bit of a onto, theme. onto ice. There's toasts and catfish. For some reason, that's that's like a like a throwing aquatic animals is like a thing. Um, this one was my favorite of the of the list though. Taylor University basketball um, has a has a tradition where they um, on the eve of finals, one of the like last games of the season. Um, the last game before finals, everybody dresses up in costumes, like uh, like Halloween costumes, and they pack the stands, and they sit in total silence from the tip-off until their team scores their 10th point. So when their team hits 10 points, the gym erupts into noise, and students rush the floor like they, like they won the game like they won a big game <laughs> they just start screaming they rush the floor everybody's cheering so excited that's 10 points into the game like <laughs> five oh, minutes into the game suddenly everybody freaks out and then it's a normal game from then on except everybody's in costume and and enjoying you know this experience together yeah and that's so sweet that's really nice. I love stuff like that. We had some at our university that we attended. Yeah, uh, when we were at Arizona State, uh, there were some almost mystical traditions, uh, things that seemed uh, unrelated to anything that was happening. And they were mostly, they revolved around uh, football. Yes, our football games got the student section. We get real rowdy, um, <laughs> but we had things, specific things that we needed to shout and certain things that we needed to 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 say at certain points of the game during a first down. We had to count that we had to get one, two, three, first down, you know, oh and point gosh. and point. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, and I remember every, the first down. Every single kickoff, we had to take our keys, which were usually on lanyards, um, and shake them as hard as we could and make as much noise with our keys during every single kickoff. And that was just just something something we did. It was it was to such an extent that there were uh, actual classes that were held to kind of inform people about these traditions. You got to indoctrinate the freshmen, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, there were there were other things surrounding the games, like around homecoming. We would always um, have to. Was that homecoming uh, guarding a mountain? Oh, um, yeah. Oh, that was, was that was for the U of A game. It was for the U for the U of A game. Um, and then oh, and then that one time the University of Oregon oh, got a hold of the it. A green. Yeah, we had this big A up on the mountain, this huge letter A that uh, if what if not guarded before certain like really important games, the other team would come in the middle of the night and paint it their team's colors. They would deface, uh, <laughs> deface our, a. our mountain. <laughs> How dare they? And um. And it, yeah, and so guarding the A, staying up all night, you know, with with flashlights and making like a camp out of it was a was a thing that like a, a good portion of the student body would take part in. Yeah. Um, and it was it, it was something that brought everybody together as a group. Uh, we had games where we would all wear black, for example. We had games where we'd all wear gold, where we all wear maroon. We, you know, we would pick a color and all wear the same thing. And it reminds me a lot of um of like like certain themed days for example at a sports event or like at Disneyland like at like Dapper Day for example where right. everybody just kind of got together and decided hey on this day we're all going to show up wearing our fanciest clothing yeah and and we do the same thing at at sports um the Arizona Diamondbacks every year have a uh have a Star Wars night actually i feel like most Pro teams I think a, a lot Star of pro Wars teams night. have a Star Wars night. I'm pretty sure, as I said that, I was like, wait, I think the Dodgers do too. <laughs> yeah. Um, where they will, everybody comes wearing Star Wars gear and shirts and they hand out, you know, Star Wars themed uh, giveaways, you know, to the first however many thousand people are in the stadium and they play Star Wars music during, you know, breaks. And, and that's, that's very similar to how like a dapper day works we yeah. we talked we talked about dapper day in our um in one of our fan event uh episodes yeah and i think what's important about these interactions and traditions is that they they invite audience participation like they emphasize the collective nature of these experiences these are not things that you get to necessarily experience alone you you can't go to a sporting event and sit alone 
because you'll always be surrounded by other people. Yes. You you can't go to a theme park alone because there will always be other people there. Uh, and that turns these experience, these very personal experiences that people care about, it turns them into collective experiences and kind of elevates them to the level of like group identity, like group feelings. So it, it can definitely enhance certain like aspects of both kinds of experience. Uh, and I love that for theme parks and for sporting events. I am reminded of uh, what can happen when these traditions kind of disappear. Uh, and I'm reminded of a tradition from a now no longer existing team that you and I are both <gasps> huge fans of. Oh, I was hoping we would get to talk about this this episode. Right. Buddy uh, Duquesne and I are both still to this day huge fans of the now defunct and non-existent uh, minor league hockey team. The Long Beach Ice Dogs. The Long Beach Ice Dogs are the single greatest team to ever take the ice in the <laughs> history of hockey. Hockey at the beach. Hockey nothing at could be finer. Beach. Nothing was nothing was better. So the Long Beach Ice Dogs, um, they were only around from 1990 to 2007. They were in the IHL League and then in the WCHL League and the ECHL League. Um, never major, you know, teams and leagues. They were our, our local hockey team. They played at the convention center in, in Long Beach to crowds of sometimes only a couple hundred people. <laughs> sometimes a crowd of dozens. <laughs> uh, and and the, the part that really stood out to me is even back then, uh, because, you know, the team went defunct uh, before we even reached adulthood. Um, <laughs> yeah, they only, um, yeah, they uh, they were only in Long Beach too from '96 uh, to 2007. Wow, they went from San Diego to LA and then to to Long Beach '96 to 07. So eh, like ten years. Wow, e even back then, I was aware that this was cheap. Like it was not expensive to attend <laughs> these games. Uh, sometimes it was only a couple of bucks to buy general admission to this hockey game. You wouldn't have an assigned seat. You just kind of walk into the arena and you sit could, wherever you could. You could sit anywhere except for like right on the ice, <laughs> I think was the rule. But even then, if you were a little kid, they'd be like, all right, come on down. If the seat's yeah, empty, well, you could just like sit on the ice. It's not like anybody else was going to sit there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was absolutely ridiculous. Everything cost a dollar, be it a hot dog or a beer. Uh not that we were having beer at the time. Uh, but, you know, everything was affordable. The feeling of community there was outstanding. There Everybody had jerseys and T-shirts and hats. We had chants that we did all the time. They they practically threw merchandise at you constantly. Oh, uh, yeah. You, like, you go, to, you go to a major league game and there's somebody with a T-shirt cannon and they fire off maybe 20 into the crowd of thousands. A crowd of dozens <laughs> just gets handed a t-shirt, actually. We all got t-shirts. <laughs> and um, I was actually just a couple of days ago wearing uh, my Ice Dog hat that I have had since 1996. <laughs> wow. Wow. I know. And, and it, it fills me with such joy to think about the Ice Dogs and the little idiosyncrasies of seeing games at the Long Beach Convention Center. Uh, but I'm reminded of one really specific uh, tradition that meant a lot to me that, at least in my experience, I wasn't able to see for a really long time at another sporting event. And that tradition is Chuck-a-Puck. <gasps> Chuck-a-Puck! Yeah! Chuck-a-Puck is a combination... Uh, darts and raffle game <laughs> uh, where participants are able to purchase pucks with numbers on them. You write the numbers that you get on a piece of paper and you throw the puck onto the ice between periods trying to land your puck in various hula hoops uh, that have been placed on the ice. <laughs> if you land in the hula hoop, you win a prize. Uh, so 
Chuck-a-Puck was awesome because imagine somebody getting on the microphone and saying, okay, three, two, one, Chuck-a-Puck, and a stadium of hundreds or dozens uh, <laughs> flinging uh, hundreds of Bright orange pucks. Orange. Bright orange rubber pucks onto right, the- <laughs> right onto the, the ice. It was so participatory and so fun. And I remember it just like making every game so special. When the ice dogs left, uh, Chuck a Puck was gone. Uh, they don't do Chuck a Puck at uh, NHL level games. No, uh, those stadiums are way too big. Right. Uh, and. You know, Alice, I'm so happy to report I have found Chuck-a-Puck again. <gasps> Who does Chuck-a-Puck? The San Jose Barracuda. Oh, no way! <laughs> the minor league team attached to the San Jose Sharks uh, allow Chuck-a-Puck at their events. That's and so cool. Going to this minor league hockey team's game uh, here in San Jose, or there in San Jose, um, and buying a couple of foam rubber pucks, I didn't throw one of mine. I took it home. It meant a lot to me to have a chuck a puck again. Uh, and I don't know. I, I feel like theme parks and sporting events both exist in their time and in their place in pretty similar ways. Because sometimes when it's gone, it's gone. Uh, and that can lend an air of like exclusivity to it it can it can lend feelings of being special uh, to each event when a game is played that's it the game has been played the results are written in the halls of history uh in, in the case of the long beach ice dogs they are written on a website that no longer exists um, <laughs> but you know the results are recorded and everybody moves on that game can never be replayed uh that that event can never be returned to and that really temporal feeling of like when a ride closes that's it it's the farewell tour or when a show or parade uh gets mothballed uh it's the same uh and that connection and that disappointment that feeling of loss can be really powerful uh so can rediscovery and i think the the story of Chuckapuck really stood out to me for that. I was like, oh, it's back. Chuckapuck. It never left. Uh, <laughs> it never and left. It was... And I'm sure there are other franchises that do similar things, usually in, in smaller stadiums. But yeah. for us, that was that was special. That was unique to to that to those games and to that experience. I was thinking about something else that happened uh, at Ice Dog Games that I rarely experience uh at any other at any other event, just by sheer size of it, because there were so few people at Ice Dog Games, um, the Ice Dogs got to fill the Long Beach Convention Center for every game with, like, bouncy houses and, um, and, like, like carnival games basically in the lobby that you couldn't do with thousands and thousands and thousands of of, uh, of people visiting because you know you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to like accommodate everybody right you'd have to turn kids away from the bounce house yeah but at the ice dog game when there's only you know 300 people at the at the game and of only a few of those are children you know they set up games for us and and like like only cost us a, a couple of bucks to play these like games that we could win like stuffed um stuffed dogs yeah spike, uh, spike the ice dog spike yeah. the ice dog <laughs> and, and we still have a, a whole bunch of those at, at home and and like that kind of intimate experience was something that was really like really special to to the to the ice dogs and to to like smaller Groups, and I imagine that's a lot like a like a smaller theme park. You were, yeah, you, you it know. reminds me a bit of our our relationship to Knott's Berry Farm, yes. where where it's sometimes so personal to be there. Yes, um, we've talked about Knott's Berry Farm extensively on the show and how it caters to to local crowds and how yeah. it's it's you know easier for people who live in the area to go to Knott's Berry Farm that the annual passes are cheaper than Disneyland and that it because it focuses so much on like local California history even that you feel 
a little more at home when you're when you're there. It's a yeah. smaller, more intimate experience. And um, this is this is a little bit of a like non sequitur. Uh, but don't you think it's kind of ironic that some of what we loved about the ice dogs was that they were like failing? <laughs> <laughs> like, there's yeah. no way that a team that was like blowing up on the national scene and was going to make amateur hockey league history was ever going to do some of the stuff that we loved about going to their games. Um, and similarly, like, we love knots when it's empty. We love knots when it's being the opposite of like Disneyland, right? Yeah. <laughs> like when, it, when, when it's... it's small and personal and and not the mainstream. Yeah, it's the, it's the, comfortable and it the feels punk rock of theme parks. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's comfortable and it feels like it's inviting you to to play, to participate, and to be a, a part of it. Um, Disney, I think, um, get Disney has found this this space between those ideas where it is wildly popular and sometimes extremely crowded but they have cultivated the community around them and the fandom around them into um and into thinking into into feeling like it is intimate and personal um, they encourage you to have your personal relationship with Disneyland and and build your own version of fandom. And and so even though it's a giant, you know, multinational bajillion dollar corporation, you know, you can still find your your community and your group and your like your your personal experience with Disneyland. Yeah, yeah most definitely. And and this isn't to say that major league sports can't do that in the same way right there's a reason people are fans yeah uh and the the bigger teams sometimes don't have that really deep personal connection like a minor league hockey team might um but they do give people feelings of community and welcome and they do you know add to the local identity and that's really interesting to me uh and you know i I love both theme parks and sports for different reasons, but their similarities, it's like that Venn diagram. <laughs> their, their similarities are also things I love about them. There is one very specific similarity that I would like to to talk to you about. One oh. One thing that theme parks and sports and very few other things share. Okay. And, um... Well, why don't you uh, come over here and step into my office? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Come on, come on in. Yeah, come uh, into okay. my office. Yeah, yeah. I'll walk uh, over there now. Yeah, come take a seat. Um, and uh, yeah, shut the door behind you if you wouldn't yeah, mind. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, welcome to my office. You may wow. notice that it has become a shrine to uh, to uh, gritty. Oh, <laughs> it's become a shrine. To, yeah. It's become a shrine to gritty. It's weird because the... I was looking right at the floor, which is covered in just horrible orange fur, uh-huh. uh, and I didn't m- let my eyes see the rest of the room, which is yeah. that which same is fur. All gritty. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> gritty is the official mascot for the Philadelphia Flyers National Hockey League team. I didn't yeah. realize how into hockey I was until we started <laughs> doing this. Um, started doing this uh episode um anyways i want to talk about gritty and how he is um sports mascots mickey mouse (laughs) (laughs) i want to talk about mascots okay let's talk Uh, about mascots this is what i wanted to talk about i brought you in here to look at my shrine to gritty and how uh, special and important and beautiful he is i mean look into look into those eyes uh, I see the... The eyes are looking back into you. <laughs> right. That's weird is that I see the contents of my own soul. I know. I paid uh, extra for that. But I also see all all souls at once, uh-huh. which yeah. is... It's like I feel connected and isolated from the creation, like the, the universe. Mm-hmm. And that simultaneous feeling is slowly disintegrating my mind uh i think i need to not look at the eyes All right, anymore, yeah, no, but don't I look into gritty's eyes cannot break hold on, the gaze of hold gritty. on hold on to this adorable little plushy philly fanatic for a second Aww, and hey. i know he's so cute yeah um and and just and just let's talk about mascots okay, because yeah. this is the thing i mean 
other than a sports game and then also at a theme park, where else are you finding these giant cartoony representations of your brand? Uh, that almost. are huggable, <laughs> that dance, that play a part in the tradition. Um, we can go back to ASU and talk about our student section um, uh, antics. Sparky the Sun Devil, our, our ASU mascot, used to do a push-up for every point that ASU scored and would get up on like a little platform and do push-ups for us while we counted. And it was special. And it was, and you could hug him and take pictures with him. And he was, he was important to us. Yeah, almost in no other situation uh, is a mascot, a costumed character, uh, such a meaningful part of the experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's great about mascots and sports teams that I think, I think actually kind of puts them on another level, like beyond theme parks, and we can mm -hmm. argue this, but uh, <laughs> they symbolize like the team. Like their emotions are the team's emotions. When things are going well, they're jubilant. When things aren't going well, they are fighting. <laughs> uh, and, and they are, you know, cheer leading cheers and trying to rile everybody up and try trying to make a comeback. Right. Right. Uh, and the the thing that sometimes gets me about uh, a, a mascot is that. Sometimes they seem like completely unrelated from the team. What are you uh, talking about? <laughs> the Philadelphia Flyers are all represented by giant orange monsters. <laughs> What's great about the Flyers is that the team itself is orange monsters. Um, <laughs> but, you know, seriously, like what does Gritty have to do with the city of Philadelphia? Does Gritty fly? Because the Flyers fly, I would assume. Um you know, here in Oakland, the A's have a elephant, which I believe has some sort of um, historic connection to the team, like an old logo. But the full name of the A's is the Athletics. And when I think athletic, the first animal that comes to my mind is not an elephant. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're very graceful, beautiful creatures that deserve our love, but they are not athletic. Um you know, the, the giants have not a giant man, but a seal, because uh, around San Francisco Bay, there are many seals. Um, but actually, there are sea lions, not seals. And see, that's the thing. <laughs> I don't understand sometimes. But I love this, like, the mascot stands in for the team. Exactly. Uh, like he's, they are representatives of the entire cosmos of the team <laughs> no exactly and in a similar but maybe not quite so intense way or, or i mean pretty intense mickey mouse is the is the the symbol of the whole disney brand right and you can go and meet him and hug him and touch him and take pictures with him and he's in all the parades and he's on your tv you know he's he is there to represent you know the disney brand and to get you hyped up about the Dis about Disneyland, right? Yeah. And um and you you know, you go to his house and you step onto his property and like that <laughs> that like that feels like a like a sports mascot like idea, uh, right? A little like bit. Yeah. Uh the the thing that I would say is is a little bit more complicated is that Mickey has to compete for space with all the other symbols of Disney. Yes. Uh, where often sports mascots are singular. Like they are the one thing that represents the team True. Where, where Mickey represents Disney in maybe the biggest way. He's not the only one representing Disney. No. And uh, yeah, Disneyland gets to have dozens of costume characters running around and, and, and setting the vibe and setting the mood and hanging out with kids and, um, and high, giving high fives and autographs and stuff. And, and it's a, it's a very similar job. And I imagine that it's a similarly difficult job um, to do with the, with the masks and everything, it sounds... Oh, yeah. Uh, the <sighs> mascot for the Mighty Ducks, or the Anaheim Ducks of Anaheim, as they are now called. <laughs> I don't um, know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his name is Wildwing. He's a giant duck uh, whose face is also a goalie mask. It is a miracle of nature. Nice. Uh, he used to rappel down from the roof of the stadium. <laughs> 
I imagine that Wild Wings' head weighs 900 pounds, uh, <laughs> thereabout. It's <laughs> And tough. then he would skate around after rappelling down. So, like, I imagine the person who is best friends with Wild Wing um, mm-hmm. is ripped. Just, just, uh, just, just absolutely, absolutely shredded. <laughs> you would have to be. It's it's a very physical job, and it's a very like intense, uh, intense like work experience. I bet, but I bet it's fun as heck. I bet oh, yeah. it's so fun. I always imagine being a char- uh, or being friends with sorry a costume character at Disneyland <laughs> uh, would be uh, just a total blast. Um, but but um, very physically demanding. Um, anyways, that was all I wanted to talk about in here in this office. I just wanted to draw a comparison between Gritty and Mickey Mouse. Uh, yeah, it, it's weird though, Alice. It's now that I uh, am here in the office, I cannot leave. Uh, no, I, this no. is my home now. Um, I will diminish now you, and become one with Gritty. Mm-hmm. That was uh, that was the idea. So, okay. Yep. Just keep looking into his eyes. I uh, just finished the show without me. Yep. Okay. Fade into oblivion. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you all for listening to this episode. (laughs) Didn't even uh, skip a beat there, did you? Nope. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Alice, I have extricated myself from the eldritch horror that is Gritty, uh, who, again, is a is a mighty leader and more more powerful than any deity. uh, Yes. By by far. Yes, of course. Um. It sounds like we've kind of reached a point in our thesis statement where we've we've laid out our evidence and our claim has become clear. Theme parks and uh, sporting events have a lot of similarities. Sporting events are, if nothing else, themed entertainment. Uh, Their similarities certainly outweigh their differences. Uh, And the same joys can be found in both kinds of entertainment. Uh, and I think that's powerful. Like it, it, it's proof positive that you know this is bigger than any one kind of entertainment. This is this goes beyond just sports or just theme parks. It, it shows what is appealing about these things uh, is kind of universal to many kinds of entertainment, and that's a cool thing to notice. Yeah, this is um, an interesting topic. We talked we've talked about this before. I'm glad we did a whole episode on it. And in our next episode, our follow up episode to this, we're going to kind of not exactly reverse the idea, but uh, we're going to instead of talking about why sports are like are, are like theme parks or why sporting events are like themed entertainment, we're going to talk about the relationship between. Uh, established theme parks and established themed entertainment and the sports industry. Um, there's, it's a, a topic just ripe with uh, with drama and conflict and all sorts of fun um, fun ideas. And uh, it's just uh, too much to tackle all in one episode. So that'll right. be that'll be our next episode, our next yeah. conversation. Uh, and and as a little bit of a preview, uh, I would like to say uh, quack <laughs> quack. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can't quack at our audience, Alice. It's not fair. <laughs> no, no, no. Maybe next time, though. <laughs> um, now, Alice, uh, the conversation about the, the intersection between sports and themed entertainment, uh, it might be over now in this episode, but it does continue online. Yes, of course. In addition to another episode on this, we are also continuing this conversation on the internet. You can follow us on Twitter at Happy Places Pod, and from there we can send you a link to join our Discord server, where all of the best conversations happen without yeah. character limit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm on Twitter almost all the time. My handle on Twitter is at buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. Yes, and I'm on Twitter at Twitter and on Instagram at Alice White THP for those happy places. Hey, uh, did you know we do like other podcasts? We do. We do do <laughs> other podcasts. We've got a whole network of podcasts that so you can learn about all of them at our Patreon, patreon.com slash those happy places. And you can get a look at our other podcasts, including our uh, our audio drama called The Joust 
which yeah. was so much fun to make and we may may revisit you never know i think it uh, joust season two might exist at some point in the future yeah, i've been thinking about it keep your eyes peeled for that <laughs> and also uh um a, a show called giving the gift of murder um and uh, our star wars podcast called rogue fun a podcast story a new episode of which will drop any minute now <laughs> or maybe it has just dropped. Uh, but yeah, that's a really exciting show where we rewatch Rogue One, a Star Wars story, uh, once a month, every month, uh, and talk about it five minutes at a time. <laughs> yes, uh, a new new episode uh, covering the very beginning of the Battle of Scarif is going to come out soon. So before that, before you listen to that, you can uh, go back to the beginning and listen to uh, us talk about the rest of the movie. And you'll find out that you uh, love this movie more than you thought you did. <laughs> I know that's what I found, about, find, found out about this movie. Uh, the more you made the podcast and then now that I am one half of the podcast, podcast uh. <laughs> yes and it's so much fun so you can learn more about those shows uh at patreon.com slash those happy places and and that's also where you'll learn uh about our various membership tiers um and all of those tiers come with new with a uh, monthly bonus episodes a, a new one of those that we dropped recently uh which was uh supposed to be a mini-sode but ended up being as long as a regular episode so you get a, 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 a uh, somewhat unsettling trend with our mini-sodes <laughs> Our minisodes mini turn out to be really long, and so <laughs> you're getting a lot of bang for your buck if you join us over at patreon.com slash those happy places. And uh, uh, we would be remiss if we went if we talked about Patreon without mentioning some very special subscribers. Yeah, our, our two friends, Aslam Chowdhury and Charles Gustine, are uh, both at the D ticket level, meaning that we thank them at the end or the beginning and almost never the middle of every episode that we put out. Uh, every thank you to episode you two. of every show. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to you two. Uh, you are gentlemen and scholars. Yes, you're wonderful. So if that sounds like something you are interested in, um, yeah, hit us up. Patreon.com slash those happy places or at those happy places.com. Um, hey, buddy, tell me about this music. Oh, the music you're hearing right now? Yeah. This music was written and probably performed by Kevin McLeod. Uh, all of his music can be found at incompetech.com. We use his music under a uh, Creative Commons 4.0 attributions license, which simply means that we have to say thank you to Kevin and list the track names in the show notes. So thank you, Kevin. Uh, the track names are in the show notes. Yeah, definitely go check out Kevin's music. Love Kevin's music, and also I love this theme song that's ramping up right now. Oh, the theme song of Those Happy Places is Golden Gate by the California Feet Warmers featuring Phil Alvin. You can find the Feet Warmers at www.CaliforniaFeetWarmers.com. They make excellent music just like this. Yes, thank you to the Feet Warmers and to Phil Alvin, and thank you, uh, thank you all for listening to uh, to this episode and uh, to you buddy thanks for being a great co-host and uh, and indulging my gritty obsession with me <laughs> Alice you are my best friend uh, the only power in the universe greater than our friendship is the power of gritty uh, <laughs> and even that is like a toss up you know Honestly. <laughs> uh, thank you for doing this show with me thank you and to everyone out there thank you for listening and we hope you return to those happy places 